1935, famed Soviet satirist Ilfim Petrov borrowed an automobile in New York City and took a road trip across the United States. Their adventures were published in the Soviet Union as a series of popular photo essays. In Santa Fe, they critique the Bureau of Indian Affairs and its treatment of American Indians. The governments that try to destroy the Indians for centuries are now trying to preserve their dwindling posterity. A liberal gentleman has been appointed the head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So-called Indian reservations have been built, where white men are allowed to conduct trade with Indians only under government supervision. Having first driven the Indians from their bountiful lands, they've now granted them a few pitiful bits of desert. Museums of Indian culture have been built. People buy their drawings, blankets, decorated clay bowls, and silver bracelets. A few beautifully equipped schools have been built for Indian children. Americans are even a little proud of their Indians, the same way the director of a zoo is proud of a rare specimen of an old lion. The lion is very old and no longer dangerous. His claws are worn down. His teeth have fallen out, but his hide is gorgeous. And the proud animal lies in his cage, resting his head on his paw and looking at the free world through narrowed yellow eyes. To a Soviet person, used to the nationality policy of the USSR, all the mistakes of the American government's Indian policy are evident from the first glance. Mistakes are, of course, intentional. The fact of the matter is that in Indian schools, classes conducted exclusively in English. There is no written form of any Indian language at all. It's true that every Indian tribe has its own language, but this doesn't change anything. If there were any desire to do so, the many American specialists who have fallen in love with Indian culture could create Indian written languages in short time. But imperialism remains imperialism. the ending the myth podcast where we explore the unrolling disaster that is american history with the occasional seldom maybe help of craig Crandon's <laughs> book the end of the myth i'm brian and i'm munya and we're here with a just very special mini episode to sort of tag on to the back of last episode where we talked about housing after the end of the after the second world war yeah, in discussing housing, we tended to focus on urban areas and the tension between white and black residents. And while the struggle took center stage during the post-war period, another drama was playing out largely behind the scenes. For American Indians, the New Deal consensus and the Cold War brought forward a new series of challenges and broken promises. By the 1930s, Indian reservations were seemingly headed toward a final dissolution. In 1887, Congress passed the General Allotment Act, which broke up the collective land ownership of tribal territory, allotting adults around 160 acres of land for individual ownership. 
Eligibility for the allotment was based on blood quantum, a system for basing tribal membership on racial makeup. The blood quantum system was used to deny many Indians their land allotment. What land was left over after the allotments was turned over to the private real estate market. Head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or BIA, Francis Loop, described the act as a, quote, great pulverizing engine for breaking up the tribal mass. By 1934, the Allotment Act had reduced Indian-held land by around three-quarters nationally. In 1924, Congress passed the Indian Citizenship Act, which unilaterally dissolved tribal nationhood. From this point on, all American Indians were classified as citizens of the United States and only members of their respective tribes, based on the racial concept of blood quantum. In 1934, the Indian Reorganization Act ordered all tribes to form their own tribal governments based on models provided by Washington. Framed as a democratic achievement in practice, these governments served the same function as colonial governments in places like the Philippines and Haiti at the time. Washington's policy toward American Indians was transitioning towards a policy of termination. Termination involved the assimilation of American Indians into general American culture and the liquidation of all Indian land holdings. The policy had its origins in the creation of the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in 1879, modeled on the Fort Marion prison in Florida and operating with the motto, Kill the Indian, Save the Man. These boarding schools sought to de-Indian native children. These boarding schools proliferated across the country. Indian children were taken from their parents and placed in these prisons where they suffered immense physical abuse and even death. By the 1930s, many Indians living on reservations were former school residents. During the Depression, Indians were encouraged to move away from the reservations and into urban areas and around the country to find work to assimilate. Congressional appropriations to tribes and BIA funding were both redirected to the war effort, putting further pressure on tribal members to abandon their reservations. The results were stunning. As historian Allison Bernstein notes, quote, The movement of American Indians from reservations to either the armed forces or urban areas during World War II totaled one-third of the entire Indian population and represented the first mass exodus of Indians from reservations to the surrounding white world. Outside the reservation, American Indians ran into immediate problems. Employment discrimination was rampant, and finding work in anything but the lowest-paying, most taxing jobs was near impossible. As for housing, Indians were blocked from homeownership by the same restrictive covenants that kept black families out of the suburbs. Landlords also tended to discriminate against Indians, leaving most to have to rely on temporary shelters built by the federal government. Racial discrimination in housing and employment doomed these relocation programs, and between 30 to 60 percent of all Indians ultimately returned to their reservations. With the passage of the GI Bill in 1944, millions of Americans were given an additional leg up in the pursuit of home ownership. White veterans in particular were able to combine subsidies from the GI Bill and the Federal Housing Administration in order to access the new homes being mass-produced in America's suburbs. The federal government applied a special interpretation to the GI Bill in the case of the American Indians, however. They were not allowed to apply directly for GI Bill aid, but instead had to move through the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Over the past century, the BIA had built a Kafka-esque bureaucracy designed to minimize funds being spent on Indian welfare. 
Overseeing this bureaucracy was Dylan Meyer, who had been head of the BIA just as termination became the state official policy of the federal government in 1953. Meyer had cut his teeth during the war as the head of the War Relocation Authority, the office tasked with the operation of concentration camps for Japanese Americans. Indians were moved into housing that the BIA referred to as passable working class standards, inadequate according to middle class standards, where, quote, the rooms are shabbily but not wretchedly furnished. The BIA hoped that this slum housing would help Indians aspire to obtaining better housing through hard work. The reality was that Indians were trapped in slum housing by the same economic forces that demanded racist wage differentials and condemned black Americans to high-cost ghettos. Public housing was considered a solution to the urban Indian problem at exactly the same time that public housing projects were being defunded and sabotaged. Relocation was proving to be difficult for American officials, but that did not stop the program of termination. As historian World Churchill notes, this effort led, quote, to the outright termination of recognition of the existence of some 108 indigenous nations whose reserve land bases were then simply dissolved. What kept all native land from being taken? Again, from Ward Churchill, quote, to all appearances, it was only the entirely unforeseen circumstance of certain reservations proving to be extraordinarily mineral rich, which prevented the consummating process of sociocultural digestion from occurring. Making exceptions in federal policy for the private exploitation of mineral and resource wealth on native land is nothing new. Historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz gives this example from the late 19th century. Oil had been discovered in Indian territory, but the Dawes Allotment Act could not be applied to five indigenous nations removed from the South because their territories were not technically reservations, rather sovereign nations. In contradiction to the terms of removal treaties, Congress passed the Curtis Act in 1898, which unilaterally deposed the sovereignty of those nations and mandated allotment of their lands. As the U.S. prepared to fight the Cold War at the tail end of World War II, it was discovered that around 80% of all the country's uranium deposits were on reservations. The remote nature of native land proved too enticing for the American nuclear program with its obsessions with Cold War secrecy and hiding effects on radiation from the public. Los Alamos land was built on Pueblo land that was seized by the federal government for the purpose. The Nellis Range in Nevada, where over a thousand nuclear tests were carried out, was carved out of western Shoshone territory. And by the 1970s, 380 uranium leases were on native land versus only four on other properties. The first major uranium mines were located on Navajo land in New Mexico. The Diné people who occupied the reservation had been impoverished by the federal government in the 1930s when their livestock had been seized and slaughtered by government officials. Now they were being offered jobs in the uranium mine. Ward Churchill describes the conditions at a Kerr-McGee mine, quote, a hundred Diné were hired to perform the underground labor at about two-thirds the prevailing off-reservation pay scale for comparable work in what was ostensibly a ventilated mine shaft. When a federal inspector visited the mine a few months after it opened, however, he discovered the ventilator fans were not functioning. When he returned three years later in 1955, they were still idle. 
1959, radon levels in the mine shaft were routinely testing at 90 to 100 times the maximum safe levels, a circumstance which remained essentially unchanged until the ore played out and Kerr-McGee closed the mine in 1970. Milling operations next to the mines worked to separate the pure uranium from the ore. The refuse from the process, referred to as tailings, was 85% as radioactive as the pure uranium. These mining facilities were run with an equal recklessness, as one former worker described. Right out of high school, I worked in the mining and milling region of Ambrosia Lake. I was 19 years old. At the mill, I worked in crushing, leaching, and yellow cake usually at various labor positions. In 1960, there was no information about the dangers of radiation from yellow cake. In the milling operation at the end of the leaching and settling process, the yellow liquid was drawn into dryers that took the water out. The dryers were screen constructions, which revolved slowly in hot air. Yellow pellets were extruded and crushed into fine powder. The workers were to keep the machinery operating, which was never smooth and most of the work was to keep it in free operation, i.e. frequently having to unclog it by hand. There was always a haze of yellow dust flying around, and even though filtered masks were used, the workers breathed in the fine dust. It got in the hair and cuts and scratches and in their eyes. I was 19 then, and 20 years later, I worried about it. The Anaconda Copper Corporation built the world's largest open-pit uranium mine in New Mexico on the Laguna Reservation. Always looking for innovative ways to dispose of their toxic waste, Anaconda mixed their tailings into the concrete mix that they used to build roads and used for the foundations of buildings built on tribal land, including a community center and a housing complex. Keeping the source of their sand and gravel mixture secret, Anaconda presented these projects as corporate philanthropy for the Laguna people. In 1957, Congress passed a law indemnifying private corporations from having to pay for the externalities that came from producing America's atomic arsenal. So when waste was stored in a haphazard manner, or open pit mines were dug so deep that they created a seepage into the groundwater, or when a tailings dam gives way, releasing highly radioactive water into a local river, as happened in New Mexico in 1979, companies could walk away without paying for the damages. And when the demand for uranium collapsed in 1980, that is exactly what they did, leaving behind cancer clusters, polluted land, and poisoned water in their wake. By the late 1960s, conditions of America's Indian reservations were becoming unbearable. Unrest on many reservations was being dealt with by increasingly heavy-handed tribal police, backed by the BIA and the FBI. But as tensions mounted, a break became inevitable. Yeah, and so I th- I think what we wanted to try and show in having this sort of discussion is, you know, A, to sort of catch up with what was happening with, you know, the American Indian population in the United States as we, you know, after we finished pushing West, right? Yeah, right. But also to show, I, I think, some of the failures of liberal policy and how spectacular they could be. Now, I, I think a lot of 
critics of American policy towards American Indians, uh, of which, uh, you know, War Churchill, we quote quite a bit in this, is definitely one, <laughs> um, <laughs> would point to the sheer cynicism of how reservations were treated post-1930s, uh, you know, basically saying the only reason they remained was so that mineral rights could be exploited <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> But I think particularly in the cynicism, too, of like things like the termination policy, uh, which is one of those rare occasions where the policy sounds as bad as it is. <laughs> the name of it is yeah. as bad as it is. But I, I think for New Dealers and liberals in the 40s and 50s, with termination, they, you know, they might charitably say, oh, what we're really talking about is you know, on the reservations, there's people who are living, you know, in this sort of dire rural poverty. And just like how in the 30s, we electrified Appalachia and places like that. What we want to do is bring these people into the economic miracle of the post-war United States, (laughs) you know, and keeping in mind that these people have liberal values, liberal capitalist values, right? They don't have communist values or anything like that. They're correct in that assessment and that you know you're able to purchase more things like when you have a regular job in the city and stuff like that right you know so charitably they could look at termination saying like no we're talking about a mass program of social uplift of native people right but there's some problems right (laughs) similar to the problems of you know because little said the same thing about black people moving from the american south to cities in the midwest and things like that yeah this right yeah this is gonna be a great project of social uplift for this previously you know maligned and ill-treated group Mm -hmm. yeah that was big like uh talking point especially like you know um after the south was getting uh crushed is like you know and like reconstruction was happening like the buzzword was really like uplift how do we uplift these freed slaves right Mm -hmm. that was that was the talking point Yeah, and if you read, uh, you know, any sort of, like, black memoir of somebody who was alive in, like, the early part of the 20th century, right? So whether you're talking about Richard Wright's, like, Black Boy or uh, uh, the amazing book Black Bolshevik, which is a a very interesting memoir worth reading, um, they always have a chapter in there that's like, then I moved to the North. And the rest of the chapter is the dissolution with that choice. (laughs) (laughs) Which is saying a lot because the South was not pretty, you know? Yeah, yeah, which is not to say that living (laughs) in the apartheid South was good. It's just saying that, oh, I was under the impression that maybe things weren't perfect in, say, Chicago or whatever, but we're going to be better. And then getting there and realizing, no, it's pretty much the same shit. It's like, yeah. different flavor of the same shit (laughs) yeah right you know this is this is a classic chapter in every one of these books that's like an early 20th century sort of memoir autobiography and um for native americans who are being forced off reservations and pushed into you know urban areas the exact same thing is happening which is i guess you know if you accept the premises of of liberalism right this should be an advancement for them, but mm. it's not because we have privatized housing systems. We have a free market for jobs, right? That in practice involve significant amounts of discrimination, right? <laughs> so yes. it was not within their power to leave, say, the Pine Ridge Reservation 
go to a place like Chicago or Detroit or whatever, get a job in the auto industry and be a part of this, you know, big middle class revolution like that just was not going to be allowed to happen. (laughs) You know, they would have to overcome extreme discrimination in employment practices, right? Extreme discrimination in housing, etc. And what that sort of points to and what we've been trying to kind of highlight, I think these last couple episodes we've talked about housing is this contradiction and tension between liberal idealism in the 50s and 60s and the realities of how capitalism functions on the ground Mm -hmm. always. It's a tension that continues to exist in American (laughs) cities, you know? (laughs) Every time you hear about a, a great project of how a neighborhood's going to be fixed up and things like that, you know, or how you know there's going to be some sort of urban improvement, this tension is still there, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Well, the fundamentals don't change of the system, right? Like you can ha- like you know have like lofty ideals on like what a change on that would be, but they're still existing within you know a a, a private market and a coercive market, right? So mm-hmm. you know, if, and if you don't really change those underlying systems, you're gonna probably end up with just some bad things one um reactionary right wingers can you know uh you know weaponize those against uh you know uh the liberal ideas right and kind of can like slide into a more you know disgusting side of fascism because that's what um ultimately like capitalism does produce if you kind of leave it on its own so yeah um and you know i mean if you talk about just like wretched conditions um for a whole group of people like i mean like looking no further than you know the native americans in america right like yeah yeah and i mean and to sort of catch us up with today i mean the you know reservations in america you know continue to be the poorest places in america uh poverty that is much more akin to you know the worst conditions of the third world than to probably what people are imagining here uh, you know, for exa- for example, right, uh, 49% of reservations lack access to clean water. <laughs> you know, that's a problem that has to do with 49%, man. Wow. Yeah. That has to do with a lack of infrastructure that was ever built, right? That has to do with a lack of maintenance to any infrastructure that was built. It has to do with the fact that people were pushed into lands that were considered uninhabitable in the 1880s uh and wow climate... imagine what they're like now <laughs> yeah and climate change has not made any more inhabitable <laughs> over time right again you know it's people suffering a consequence for a thing that they are not responsible for you know american indians not received the benefits of industrialization and climate you know the creation of climate change right but they are certainly getting the the stick of it right but yeah five to ten percent of reservation homes just still lack indoor plumbing so that's the other problem, right? You know, again, we're talking shack housing in a lot of cases. You know, as far as the health effects of this, uh, there was an LA Times article from last year, uh, quote, the Hopi tribe in Arizona has up to three times the amount of arsenic in its water than the EPA says is safe to drink. Many native households in rural Alaska use a five-gallon bucket as a toilet because they don't have running water. And the Navajo Nation, the biggest reservation in the U.S., faces a diabetes crisis because soda is more accessible and cheaper than clean drinking water. These are serious crises that you would not expect in an industrialized 
nation like the United States, an advanced industrialized nation. And I think there's also some clear links that you could draw too when you think about, say, uh, the uh, condition of your water systems in black cities and towns mm, yeah. in America, like Flint, Michigan, right? Flint you is know? a good example. <laughs> um, you know, why are these systems allowed to deteriorate? And part of it is the population you're allowing it to deteriorate on has no political power to do anything about it, right? Yeah. You know, you know maybe they can get a news story once a year. You know, that's it. Right. Uh, you know, and I guess to, to show, you know, how isolated these reservations are, uh, Obama doesn't even bother to fly out and drink any of the arsenic. You know, pretend to drink any of the arsenic water. In <laughs> <laughs> but but the end result, of course, is that, you know, in places like the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, uh, which is Lakota Sioux, you know, the life expectancy there is 47 years for men, 52 for women. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, these are pretty dire conditions in a lot of these places. Um, you know, from for people that have just been left to die, essentially, in the desert. Now, I think one other important thing that's worth talking about is in the 1920s and 30s in the United States, there came to be this idea about... Uh, a sort of the idea of a black nation within the nation of the United States. Mm. Right. And the idea of like, a, you know, uh, the treatment of black people in the United States as being a colonial project. Right. And things like that. And I think there's a lot of merits to that idea and how they're discussing it, but it always sort of lacked the idea of like geography. Right. Particularly once the black population started moving out of the South. But one place where that fits exactly 100% perfectly, the idea of colonial resource extraction is reservations. Yeah. A fixed geography of people cut off from any ability to defend themselves, completely exploited by American corporations who, after sticking them on this land because they thought the land was completely worthless, figured out at the beginning of the 20th century, oh, in some areas there's oil, and some areas there's mineral rights, and most unfortunately, after the Second World War, in some areas, there's uranium. The perfect place to exploit people that are already essentially crushed by poverty, right? Out in the middle of nowhere, nobody knows it's happening. Nobody's covering anything that's happening out there. And you can just do what you want. It's bleak. And that's why I like I my my just on another point, like that's just why my ears already just go numb and deaf whenever I he, just hear Americans like either, you know, decrying some like, you know, event happening like in the in like, you know, third world or global south countries, specifically ones that, you know, maybe take an interest with like, you know, our national media, right? Uh <laughs> and and they're like, oh, how 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 could this happen, right? Not like let's just like take aside for a moment, like the actual validity of those claims, right? Even assuming that they're true, it's like you know how how where where are we organizing within our own country, right? If you really actually mm-hmm. care about that, like we're having like classical like colonial extracts, um, genocidal things that are still ongoing. I think that's one of the myths really that we kind of see here mm-hmm. is that um, you know that this is all like far away history that mm-hmm. is just like you know um 
a thing to only learn and not an ongoing process like the uh the process of genocide of like native and indian people uh is still ongoing today right and it's something that's like happening that our federal government's pursuing state governments are pursuing right the settler colonial project of america is still like happening to native americans today and the exploitation of their land is still happening today they still are around right this is not just like you know like you know fairy tales or you know history that only happened 100 years ago that we could just learn about and so um you know if you describe those conditions like to you know anyone else really like outside of uh the u.s like i mean you know uh it's it sounds exactly what it does sound like right which is Mm -hmm. just a brutal occupation and colonial extraction of of native people's lands yeah, and it shows too. I, you know, I think the links that we're trying to draw, you know, in this drawn out way of discussing American history, is this idea of like when we talk about racism towards Black people and things like that, the treatment of Black people in the United States. You know, we're saying, hey, if you go back to the beginning, they figured out at some point over the course of decades, they figured out that shackling black people to slavery and explain that way was extremely profitable. And ever since then, the capitalist class has been working on new ways to rejuvenate an old idea, right? Yep. Which is the labor exploitation of the black population at the highest possible level. How do you maintain that? Right. And that is at the roots of, you know, racism racist policies and things like that right and it's one of those things that that has to be dealt with in a serious way if you want those things to end and for native people right for american indians the problem was always land exploitation they always wanted the land and not the people yeah and you know those two things like you know actually um capturing and um you know kidnapping african um people right and enslaving them um, allowed really for the genocide of Native American people, mm-hmm. right? Like they didn't need to exploit the people for their, you know, labor. They didn't need to enslave them because they already had them. So it's just like, oh, we'll take their land, you know, and eradicate you and the community. Yeah, I mean, they literally went to Africa, captured African people to bring back as labor to work land that they had depopulated of the Indian population, right? And the idea was, well, the Indians can't exist so long as it's over there, out of the way, nowhere where we want to be, right? And what, of course, does that result in eventually is the creation of, you know, a reservation system, a a system of essentially you know, unwalled concentration camps where you just trap a population in an area that is not particularly survivable and is presumed to have no value whatsoever. And you just leave them there to die. Right. You know, anybody familiar with the situation in Gaza, right. (laughs) You know, might be familiar (laughs) with this idea. Right. Or, you know, yeah. The creation of like Bantu stands in South Africa. I I mean, these are, these are familiar concepts in imperialism. And, you know, one of the things that is about, you know, that's the sort of glamour that, you know, American media and history and stuff puts on people is this is right here in the United States. It's right in your face. If you're in the West in particular, you might be very familiar with these reservations and things like that. And still you can't see it. Right for what it is it's a dumping ground right you know 
And even at the point that they figured out that there's this great mineral wealth on these reservations, the only thing they could think to do with it is hyper exploit the local population, use them, right? Turn them to dust and then leave the second the you know minerals are taken out of the ground, leaving nothing behind, right? Particularly not any of the money. Um, the cynicism of a company like Anaconda, you know, using radioactive material to build a community center, you know, <laughs> for the local tribe. I mean, it's it really is off the rails. I mean, the kind of stuff that if a villain did it in a movie, you would feel like it's too much. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's the, the, the Bond villain like went too far. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, we'll go ahead and we'll leave you with some more observations from New Mexico, from our Soviet travelers, Ilf and Petrov. Uh, by the way, this is from a book called Ilf and Petrov's Great American Road Trip, which I do recommend everybody pick up and read. It's fantastic. Their thoughts about lots of areas in the United States, um, most of which are exactly correct. <laughs> I gotta say, <laughs> it turns out the immortal science of Marxism Leninism is great for road trips, understanding road trips as well. Um, <laughs> so, after being educated by the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Santa Fe, Ilfin Petrov decided to actually travel to a Navajo reservation and meet a actual American Indian. The bridge was built by the government with profits from the oil that was found on the reservation. That is to say, with the Indians' money. The Indians protested. They didn't ask anyone to build a bridge that was important to the gasoline, automotive, and tourist companies, but not to them. A suit was filed in court. The Indians won. The money had to be given back to them. Now they have no complaints about the bridge. We went into one of the wigwams. A beautiful Indian woman sat on the floor surrounded by a whole brood of little children, the smallest, still just a babe in arms, was tied to a wooden plank that was lying on the ground. The biggest one was about seven. Like their mother, children were dirty but unusually pretty. We tried to foist some chocolate off of them. Scared, the little one started howling. Only the oldest, seven-year-old, who clearly also wanted to start screaming, got himself under control made dirty little fists, and looked at us with such fury that we immediately left. The former missionary told us that Indians teach their children hatred of whites. Then an ancient rusted-out automobile drove up, and the man of the family came out. We tried to talk to him, but he didn't answer. He didn't want to talk to whites. In that moment, we could clearly see the hypocrisy of all those Indian bureaus, schools, museums, and reservations, and all that bustling philanthropy of the old criminal crudely trying to win pardon for the sins of his youth. The money's not to deal, the cows are not to deal, it's freedom and liberty and access to a land to get rid of this abusive government. It's free real estate. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Hold on. We have extra bonus material. Let's um, go. Munya, here's something you're hearing today for the first time. I found this New York Times article in my research. 
and I couldn't find anywhere to put it, <laughs> you know, in our discussion. But it's just too good to leave out. All okay, right? let's hear it. So this is from January of 1955. The article was titled Soviet Gets Treaty Sold Here as Scrap. An old Indian treaty that New York State mistakenly sold for waste paper was reported today on its way to the Soviet State Museum in Moscow. Dr. E.A. Bates, Cornell University Indian Authority, said he had received word from London that the treaty had shown up there and had been sold at a book auction to a company that frequently acted as an agent for the Russian Museum and individual Russian historians. He said it was generally understood in London book auction circles that the treaty was being taken to Moscow to be put on display in the Soviet Museum. The document, he explained, gives the white man title to land adjacent to the Tonawanda Indian Reservation, about 25 miles east of Buffalo. The treaty bore X marks standing for the signatures of eight Seneca chiefs. The treaty was among many valuable documents that had been inadvertently thrown away several months ago when the state disposed of 88 bales of waste paper in a general house cleaning. The papers were sent to a Canadian pulp mill for processing, but some were salvaged by various individuals and by New York State archivists when it was learned valuable historical documents were involved. The Cornell Indian expert expressed the opinion that the treaty might be used in Moscow as, quote, documentary proof of how capitalism worked to dupe the Indians. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I love the square scare quotes around documentary proof yeah, or whatever. Right. It's like, hey, it is documentary it is. proof. It's, and it it's a document is. proving they <laughs> screwed these people out of land. So don't need to put scare quotes around it. It's a fact. Yeah. <laughs> that is what it is. Come on, man. Like <laughs> <laughs> I I searched everywhere to see if I could find what treaty this was and whether it was still at a museum in Moscow or not. And I, I could not find any reference to this anywhere. Uh, if anybody's listening, knows anything about this by, uh, by all means, like contact us immediately. Yeah, please do. <laughs> I... <laughs> Incredible stuff though. Um, and, you know, I mean, again, proving the immortal science of Marxism-Leninism yep. uh, <laughs> always gets you into the right right place, you know. It so, does. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible <Wow. stuff. laughs> I just picture, like, so the thing is, we're talking about seeding land around Buffalo. So we're talking a treaty probably signed sometime between 1776 and like 1810, right? Right. Yeah. So I love the idea that they're just taking piles of like 150 year old documents, just throwing them in the trash. <laughs> like, yeah, who gives a shit? <laughs> like whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is also funny to me. Just good stuff on all levels. Well, yeah. <laughs> that's all I had for everybody. We'll see you next week. All right. Bye bye. <laughs>
del otro lado de la frontera dicen que siempre podrán saltar el muro por muy alto que sea. Ellos, junto a activistas, aseguran que la valla es el peor legado de la administración Trump y que no ha disminuido los cruces de